Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. In English, there's a wide gap between the phrases have to and get to. In some ways, they refer to almost the same thing. If you have to do something, you get to do it. If you get to do something, you might have to do it. If you want a new car, you have to pay money for it. But then you get to drive a new car. Have to, get to. Or you have a teenage daughter, tell her to clean her room. Do I have to? You say, here's the keys to the new car. Do I get to drive the new car? So have to and get to, similar, but in English, the way we use them conveys an entirely different attitude. They're very separate in attitude, more than just in meaning. This is important because it applies to what we're talking about in Scripture today. What John leads us to today is Christian obedience. And whether you think Christian obedience is a matter of have to or get to will make one of the single most significant differences in your life, whether you live a rather unpleasant Christian life or a very rich, enjoyable one. It's true in both cases that we have to and we get to obey God as Christians. Do you have to obey God? You do. If you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus himself said, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. True Christians obey. We've seen that in John, put off unrighteousness, we live a righteous life. Not completely, but characteristically. So do you have to obey as a Christian? You do have to obey. But if you primarily see the Christian life as a matter of have to, then what you end up doing is standing there stoically against the cold, chilly winds of obedience. You kill off emotion, and you simply do the right thing because you must. Now, as a Christian, there are times when that's exactly what you have to do. But does the Bible present that as what the Christian life ought to look like most mornings, most hours of the day, most times as you're going to sleep, year after year of mere, stoic, cruel, harsh submission to the will of God? No. <laughs> no, because where's joy? Where's life? Maybe you misheard when Jesus said, he didn't say, I came to give misery and to give it abundantly. <laughs> Sometimes we think of Christian obedience that way. That's the have to, and it shouldn't characterize most of how we live our lives. The Bible presents obedience primarily even though we have to, but it's primarily presented to the Christian as you get to obey. You get to. That's a part of the good news. And we've talked about this. Not that you obey and now you're right with God. Doesn't work that way. You're wrong with God. You're dead in sin. Christ died upon the cross. You trust in Him. The Spirit comes into your life. All of your guilt is removed. You are as innocent now as you'll ever be in the sight of God, but when that happens, notice the Spirit came into your life. And before you could not obey, and now you get to obey. Now you can obey. 
It is one of the blessings of the grace that's appeared in Christ Jesus. It's not just sign the back of a card and you'll go to heaven. It's you're completely changed. And now you can, you get to obey. The Christian heart changed by the Holy Spirit, it longs to obey. It's the heart blessed like the beatitude. It hungers and it thirsts for righteousness. Do you ever feel that ache within yourself? Sin has the lure, it's drawing you, and there's a certain pleasure in sin or we wouldn't do it. But if you're a believer, you also have this ache within yourself. You're hungering after righteousness. You want to live a holy life. It's not normal. It's what happens to a Christian. It's as one biblical counselor put it very well, we Christians want to obey Christ more than we want to breathe. So if the gospel came and said, I'll clear your guilt, innocent, get to heaven, free card, but you're just going to have to be stuck in all your old sins, commit them, swap them for different sins, nothing I can do there. We would live miserable lives, all of us. But the gospel says you're clear of your guilt. And you see that sin habit you're struggling with, the one that grieves you, the one that keeps you up at night, the one that breaks your heart, the one that spoils your relationships, the ones that puts attention in your relationship with God, that clogs all the pipes of joy. You see that? If you're a Christian, let's get to work. You can overcome that. You don't have to. You get to unclog the pipe. Live a fuller more joyful Christian life. And when you stumble doing it, you're not condemned. By Sinai, you're still forgiven. You get back up and you get to continue making progress in Christian obedience. This is not like a trip to the dentist. Sometimes, sometimes obedience feels that way as we extract old sins. Ah, oh, but it's more for us like a child having a birthday party and you're opening presents. And one of your presents in the gospel is, I can overcome sin now. <laughs> I can really put it off. I can really love others, even if I've not in the past. Yes, you can. You get to keep that present. That's for you. <laughs> Do you have to obey as a Christian? Yes. But more importantly, you get to obey as a Christian. And whether you see obedience as have to or get to will make a very big difference in your life. This is really what John is saying as we come to the last two verses of 1 John chapter 3. He's had a lot to say about obedience, but he's going to round off this chapter and this whole section on us loving each other with a very nice summary of what Christian obedience is, how we do it. So let's look at that, 1 John chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Sorry, 23 and 24. <laughs> There's no 25. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Our passage today begins with that word, 
commandment. And we're all coming from different places. Some of you have a background where someone has used rules, commands in a strict way to crush you. Maybe a boss, maybe a parent, whatever. And you hear the word commandment or obey and red flags go up and red lights go off. You're going to have to put the flags down and turn the light off somehow. We're not talking about that person who perhaps was too strict with you. Others here just by temperament are more independent. So the idea of any rules at all, whether good or bad, are no to you. You don't like them. They're too, oh, like a straitjacket. You're going to have to throw that idea out, whatever your temperament may be. Because when John talks about commandment, his commandment, God's commandment here, it's with no hesitation. He loves God's commandment. God's commandment is good. So if you have negative connotations with the idea of obedience or commandments, maybe it's baggage from your past, but you got to check that baggage in to get on the flight. You can't take it with you. We can't bring that with us into this text. John doesn't have that baggage. Commandment here is, as Paul said, good. It's righteous. It's good. It's not a bad thing, as we're going to see his idea of commandment is good because notice in that text, it's his commandment, verse 23. His. Who's his? His who? God's. It's God's commandment. So if you've, if you've been part of a cult or in a bad, maybe legalistic church or just a bad experience where others, someone else has commandments you have to obey, don't bring that into this text. This is God's legitimate commandment, and it's good. Really, John could say what the psalmist sang. Lead me in the path of your commandments, God, for I delight in it. So this morning, all we're going to do is enjoy the get-to of Christian obedience, of His commandment. And what you're going to see here is whatever your past experience with obeying God may be, the way John presents it is with two perspectives. One... God's commandment, it's simple. Number two, his commandment for you if you're a Christian, it's possible. It's simple and it's possible. So let's look at those one at a time here. So let's begin by seeing how God's commandment, and we'll see that's his commandments, but how they're simple. Verse 23 reads like this. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. It's interesting because if you look at the next verse, he's going to talk about God's commandments with an S at the end, in the plural. But notice, did you notice in this verse? I'm sure you did. It's a commandment, singular. This is his commandment. And maybe you thought that unusual because then he goes on to list two commandments <laughs> that we believe and that we love. How is this his commandment? Well, because it's plural in the next verse and even the fact that he gives you two shows us that he's not simplistic. When it comes to obeying God, it's not simplistic. It's not you can get up in the morning and before breakfast you can do all your obeying and then you're done. It's not like that. But obeying God is simple, and I think his use of the singular here already suggests that. That he can give you the essence of what it means to obey God. 
There will be a lot of expressions. Every minute of every hour of your day, there will be opportunities for an expression of doing the will of God. But if you boil all of those individual acts down, we could get to a commandment, which in this case is twofold. Believe and love. Now before we even talk about those two commandments he gives, believe in Christ, in his name, love, you just have to take a step back and enjoy the fact that there is a simplicity, a simpleness about being a Christian when we come to doing the will of God. Sometimes we do get so burdened by a sense of how short we fall of God's will that it starts to feel like, man, i got to change everything in every part of my life. There's a million commands. Every time I read the Bible, I'm convicted. There's something else i got to do. All of them are rebuking me for this and them for this. And they've got these ideas and these ideas. And it's easy to feel like there's a massive yoke upon your shoulders as a Christian. There's not only all of the expressions of commandments in the Bible as you read it, but then there's a lot of opinions of people around you based on the Bible. Some of those differ. And at some point, you just feel a little exhausted. Like, how do I even obey? There's a lot to do as a Christian. No, it's his commandment. And then he only gives two. This is a lot like what Jesus did, and that's maybe what you thought of as we got to this verse. Jesus did the same thing. He said you could take, even in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, you could take all of the laws, hundreds of laws, and boil them down to their essence of just two. Love God with all you've got. Secondly, love your neighbor. And Jesus said the whole law and the prophets, that whole Old Testament, and there's a lot of pages there, you know, all of that depend upon those two commandments. Or as he put it elsewhere, there's no greater commandment than those two. That's it. That's the pinnacle. So Jesus did the same thing John's doing. It's not like he didn't know there were hundreds of commands in the Old Testament, but he said, you can simplify it. You can boil it down to its essence. And it's love God, love your neighbor. Now, here we have love each other. Then you have believe in Christ instead of having what you expected to have. And we'll get to why that is. Really, it's how better can you demonstrate your love for God than to say, God, I don't think you're a liar. <laughs> we'll see that later in John. God's the one who testifies about his son. If you don't believe in Christ, you're calling God a liar. That's not very loving toward God, is it? So we just, so John, instead of saying love for God, love for others, he's saying believe in Christ, one expression of loving God, love for others. We'll talk about that in a moment. Right now, we're just pointing out the fact that both Jesus and John were willing to say, although there are a lot of specific ways you have to obey in life, it can all be boiled down. It's not sporadic. It's not like, oh, over here, do this. Totally unconnected from over here, do this. All of it comes down to one root, one center in this twofold command of believing and in loving. This is important because John's going to say in chapter 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Do you believe that's true? There have been, to be honest, times in my life where I've read that very verse and I thought, what am I missing here? <laughs> when God's commandments did seem burdensome. That's why John simplifies it for us. It is simple. Now, this is something that's not true of any system that is merely human, 
that's moral or religious. All of us by nature understand our bent to desire to win our ways to heaven by obeying whatever we think God or the gods want us to do. So we make rules based on what we think God or the gods want us to do, and then the rest of our lives, if we're in a merely human system of religion or morality, the rest of our lives are spent hoping we do good enough, keep enough of the rules to get into heaven or into paradise, or into enlightenment, or whatever else it may be. So the tendency outside of genuine Christianity is always in obedience. It's always toward complexity. Because what happens is generation after generation, because there's no actual divine revelation here, generation after generation, you have new religious leaders or moral leaders rise up, and they have new ideas of what they think you should be doing to get into heaven or enlightenment. So they add their ideas, and then the next generation comes along and says, well, yeah, sure, do that, but also, have you thought of, you got to do this as well? And you end up with book upon book upon book of human tradition, of things that you now have to do. At some point, you lose even a sense of why we have to do this. It's just told to you, do this, and if you do it well enough... You get to heaven and you end up with a sporadic list of all these commandments. Maybe some of you come from a background more legalistic in nature or a works righteousness background and you understand there are a lot of rules, complexity of rules that you have to keep. In my own case, I come from Amish stock, never been Amish, but I have grandparents who were and among the Amish, each Amish community has a ordnung. It's a set of rules that governs that community. And we're not talking about like, oh, Christian rules. No, these are traditions. Traditions that you usually can't defend. It's tradition from the past, came up at some point. Not sure why we keep it all the time. For example, one of the stricter groups within the Amish, the Schwarzentrubers, in their Ordnung, here's one section of it so that you can see. The clothes the women wear are to be made of all dark colors, such as dark blue, dark green, dark red, dark gray, and black. The material shall be made of dacron, broadcloth, rayon, or polyester. The seams on the dress shall be narrow, no more than five-eighths of an inch wide. The pleats that are sewed in the back of the dress shall be no more than three-fourths of an inch wide, and shall be ironed, but not to the bottom of the dress. The dress length shall reach the shoe tops. The shoes shall cover their ankles. The apron shall have a three-fourth inch tie strap around the top section, and shall be four inches shorter than the dress. Three pleats shall be sewn to the bottom of the dress, and shall shall not be narrower than one half inch and no wider than three-fourth inch. You think it's hard to be a Christian? You can have however many pleats you want in your dress. But the tendency, as you can see, in any man-made religion is toward a complexity because of the buildup of tradition. What John is doing here in this verse is saying, look, I know there are many expressions of doing God's will, but they can all be boiled down because they all come from God, and they have an essence. We could even call it a commandment, singular. It all has an essence here, which will be believe and love, as we'll see. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. What about the Old Testament? There were a lot of regulations, maybe not that exact, but sometimes in the tabernacle and how people lived. And that is true that in the Old Covenant, which we're not under, right now, but in the Old Covenant, there were very specific rules because of what was God was doing then. 
But this is part of the gospel is that Jesus has fulfilled those regulations as a good Jewish man in the Middle East for us so that we are freed from the yoke of the law. Not so we can go live however we want, but so that we don't have to live according to these exact measurements. Instead, Jesus at the Last Supper said, this cup, this is the new covenant. It's not the old covenant. He fulfilled it. This is the new covenant. Now, if you just think about it, here you are sitting here, a Christian under the new covenant. What are the outward ceremonies that Christ requires of you? Three-fourth inch anything? No, this is really, as believers, there's only two. Communion, the Lord's table, which we did today, and baptism. Those are the two outward sort of ceremonies that we still participate in. But notice, those two are of such a nature that you could do those in any part of the world. You don't need some very specific context in which you can do that. And that was God's purpose in freeing us from all the strict regulations of the yoke of the law is so that Christianity could spread across the globe. You realize Christianity didn't start here in our country. It came here. It's from somewhere else. It's from the Middle East. And it came here. It could not come here if you had all the strictures of what you have to do. It came here with those two commands, those two sort of ceremonies. There is a real freedom to the commands of Christ. It's not external, complex list of rules that you must keep. So before we even talk about what the command is, I just want us to remember and enjoy the fact that you have been freed from any human man-made system of religion, and there are many out there right now, that would list out and regulate in detail, according to human tradition, all the complex rules that you must keep to try to get to heaven. Never take that for granted. You can wake up in the morning you're not worried about pleats on a dress. You're not worried about it. You've been set free in Christ. So, obeying God is simple. Not simplistic, but it is simple. Now let's look at that. What, are, what is it that he says, this is his commandment? What is it? Is it do whatever you want? Definitely not. <laughs> what is it? Like I said, he gives us really a twofold commandment. First, he says, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, that we love one another. We already talked about Jesus and how he simplified love God, love others. But if you've ever read the end of the book of Romans, this might also surprise you because there in chapter 13, as he's kind of applying what he's written, he writes this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and he quotes some of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up, that's what we're doing in John, summing them all up, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you wondered why are they summed up in that, he actually explains, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you love the people in this room right now, if you love others genuinely from the heart, 
you will obey God in every individual expression. Sometimes with ignorance, we mess up, etc. Okay. But horizontally speaking, it's not like you have a million traditions. Good luck. If you genuinely love others in this room, in the way the Bible defines love, you will obey every commandment. Because if you really love the person sitting next to you, are you going to kill them? Highly unlikely. That's Paul's point. Now, what's surprising is when Paul summarizes, he just puts his focus on this, what James calls the royal law. Love. It's the chief command here. Love. John summarizes a little differently. He includes love one another, but he also has this first commandment, and it is that you believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. You might think, why include that when Paul only has love one another? I think a lot of that comes from, as you may be able to guess, the context in which John is writing. John is writing to a group of Christians 2,000 years ago who had a section from their own church body who took on a different view of Christ, believed that he did not actually come in the flesh, and this group that took on a different view of Jesus, a heretical view, they then left this church body to go start their own thing. And now they say, we believe in the name of Jesus. We love Jesus. We love each other. But they're over there with a completely false view of Jesus. They're not even believing in the real Jesus. I think that's why John finds it necessary to include not just it's summed up in loving each other, but you need to know that it's also summed up in believing the real Jesus. And it's so important that he addresses it this way for us today, even though we're so much after his time, because that's exactly the modern spirit to feel like, you ever felt this? Well, okay, you know, Mormons got different theology, but I mean, they seem to love each other. So is it really that big of a deal? Or they might have a false view of Jesus. They might not even believe in Jesus. They might be a Muslim and think he was a prophet. But I mean, look at how much good stuff they're doing. They seem like they love each other. Is it really that big of a deal? Do I really need to share the gospel with them? Sometimes they're loving better than I'm loving people. I think that's exactly why John adds in this second element. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ here and love one another. None of us get to heaven by loving one another. You can't love your way into heaven. There has to also be this believing in Christ. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Almost as if to confirm this point, there's a small matter of the grammar in Greek. Is it okay if I tell you about that? Don't fall asleep, okay? It's just so important. And I'll be so brief. But it is important that in the Greek, almost always, when we're talking about believing in Jesus Christ, even later in this letter, when he talks about believing in Christ, always John will include, almost always, he'll include a little word. It's called a preposition. Don't be scared by it. It's totally fine. It's just a little word, ace, that means sort of into, usually into. You believe into Jesus Christ. You believe ace Jesus Christ. So when he's talking about trusting in Christ, that's typically how he puts it. This is one of the odder passages because you would exactly expect him to say that right here, but he doesn't. 
Instead of saying ace, what he does is there's no ace. And instead he takes the name, you believe in the name, and he changes what we call a case. It's just in a different form. Okay? It's in a different form. But what's interesting is most all the time when John talks about believing in, and then he, instead of using ace, uses this different form, he's almost always referring to believing the content that someone is telling you. Rather than this trusting in Christ, it's believing this content that you're being told, which includes, of course, trusting, but it's more focused on that. Let me give you an example. Here's John 5:46. Jesus said, if you, the Jewish people, believed Moses, not believed ace into Moses, but he says, if you believed Moses, same case as here, you would believe me, same case change as here. Because he wrote of me. The point Jesus is making there is if you believed what Moses communicated, if you believed the content coming from Moses, then you would have believed the content about me. But there's a focus here, of course, trusting in Jesus. But I hope you can see when he writes like this, the focus is on the content. And that makes perfect sense for John when he says, this is part of the commandment that you believe in the name of Jesus. The name is just the person, it's Jesus. You believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Because John has a special emphasis right here on you believing in the true Jesus. Because there are many people who believe in a false Jesus and look like they love one another. And John wants to be very careful to say, no matter how much it looks like people love each other, if they don't confess Jesus, in our passage, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, one with God eternally, and as he'll say elsewhere, that he's come in the flesh, a virgin birth, he really lived, he really died, he really rose, resurrected. If they don't believe that, and you might say, who doesn't believe that? A lot of people, a lot of Christians. There are many churches you could go to and they wouldn't believe those things. Say he was a great myth. He's a great man. He didn't do those things. And you'll go in there, look like they love each other. And John's saying, they're not keeping God's commandment. You have to believe in the true Jesus as he's presented to you in Scripture. You can't make up a different one. And in doing that, love others. But you see, once you've done that, that's it. (laughs) That's why it's simple. That's why it's a commandment. It's not a list of regulations. It's believe in the true Jesus as you find him in the scriptures through the apostolic testimony. Do that, then love each other, and you're good. It's like the church father Augustine said, love each other, and then do whatever you want. (laughs) Because you'll do what's right, because you love each other. Very simple here. Now, This does raise a question. So here's his commandment, twofold. Believe, got it. Love, working on it. So you got those, simple. But you may even, as you're listening to this, have had the thought, hmm, if we just emphasize this and don't focus on the specifics right now, won't that encourage someone to say, well, I love people, so I could go do whatever I want, as long as I'm loving people, as long as I'm believing in Jesus. I can go sleep with people, I can go do, because I'm loving people and I'm believing in Jesus. In other words, is there a danger here of, can I give you a big word here? Is there a danger here of what we call antinomianism? Anti-against, namas, 
law, commandment? Is there a danger that we'll develop an attitude? If we say it's simple, will you develop an attitude that says, I don't need all these commandments. I don't need all these rules, even from the Bible. I don't need any of that help. I'll just love people, do my thing. It's always a danger for the church. But it's not a danger if you really do love each other as the Bible teaches you to love each other. To love each other according to the Bible includes wanting the very best for each other. And what is the very best for each other? Whatever the Bible says is the very best for each other. (laughs) So when you find other expressions of God's will in Scripture, like keep away from immorality, then you know to love others is going to include you doing that and you helping others do that. Let me just give you a specific example. I just picked one. It's not even the most important. But just so we can put this up against what John's saying. It's a simple idea. His commandment, will it make us antinomian? Just take an example like modesty, which culture to culture, things change, people change. So there are some ways to approach modesty. One is we could write a very thick book of rules and regulations, kind of like we had read, of exactly how to be modest as a male or a female. At every season of life, this is exactly how long your clothes have to be, how thick, where, everything. And then we could just conform to that. But you understand, if we approached modesty that way, you wouldn't have to love anybody except yourself. You could keep every commandment in that book and not love a single person. Reverse it. What if we put our emphasis instead on, even with modesty, Modesty is for you a matter of you loving brothers and sisters here. If you foster that attitude instead, that I get to love my brothers and sisters by how I dress. It's not a, oh, put on a potato sack, miserable. No. You have the get to, the opportunity to participate in the now millennia long art. It's really an art that Christians participate in of dressing both pleasantly for other people, dress pleasantly, comb your hair for people. You don't have to do it for yourself. You might think, my body doesn't matter. I don't have to shower. Well, you don't have to shower. Your body doesn't matter, but it matters to the person sitting next to you. (laughs) So you're showering for that person. But it's an age-long art of dressing pleasantly and in a way that will not lead others into temptation. Modesty is not, it doesn't have to be a, Uh, strict thing. It doesn't have to be like what my my mom, when she was very young, maybe 12 years old, she was in a church one time, and as the worship was going, they were singing, and an older stranger, a man next to her she'd never met, the stranger looks down and sees that she had nail polish on her fingernails, and that stranger reached over, grabbed her hand, and started scraping the nail polish off her fingernails during the service. I guess that's one way to get modesty done. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. That man didn't have to, and probably didn't. I can't judge his heart. He didn't have to love her at all. So even for modesty, does that mean, oh, we don't care. We'll dress however we want. No, just the reverse. We care about it because we care about each other. You can apply that to any area of the Christian life. That's what John's saying. He's not antinomian like, oh, love each other, do what you want. He says, if you love each other, if you believe in Christ and you love each other, that is going to help you obey better than anything else. Because that's the very summary of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
And if you're doing right to your neighbors, then you are doing the will of God. That's what he wants. So first of all, John wants you to think of God's commandment as simple. It's a commandment. But as we move from 23 to 24, we're addressing another question, which is simply this. Okay, let's say obeying God is as simple as you say. I need to love others. Figure out how to do that. Well, don't you know me? I don't love others. <laughs> I find that really hard. Sometimes I get irritated. I get angry at other people. So what does it matter to me if God's commandment is simple, if it's simply impossible? It's like saying, it's simple. All God wants you to do is take your pinky and pick a mountain up. That's it. Nothing else. Say, so, well, it doesn't matter if it's simple if I can't do it. And John knows this. And so we have to move to the next verse because John wants you to know not only that God's commandments, obedience to God, is not just simple for the Christian, but it is also possible for the Christian. Let's look at this here in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments expressions of that commandment, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The very first point I want to make here in this text is that John clearly expects that people, when he says whoever keeps his commandments, he's expecting that people can do that. It's not superfluous, like whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, too bad nobody can do it, nobody can abide in God. It's not what John's saying here. You can't perfectly keep God's commandments, but there's an expectation that believers can obey God. You can live a life of increasing Christian obedience. You say, okay, how do I do that? Historically, there have been two answers. One's heresy, don't believe that. The other one's given in this verse. Let me tell you the wrong answer first. How are you going to grow in Christian obedience? One answer has been this. It was given a long time ago by a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius was there in the early church, and he said, hey, wait a minute. If God gives us all these commandments in the Bible and expects us to keep them and punishes us if we don't, then we must be able to keep God's commandments all by ourselves. If it requires God's help, well, he can't really judge us for that if he doesn't help us. So it must be something we can do. You can grow in obedience all by yourself without God's help. <laughs> you know that's false? You know that's false. So did the church father Augustine. So did the Council of Carthage in 418 that condemned Pelagius' views. We cannot obey God all by ourselves. This is not the doctrine of sacred bootstraps. You can't just try harder, obey God grow in loving each other. So that's not the how. In fact, even though the church had condemned this Pelagian view that you can do it by yourself, later they adopted what we call a semi-Pelagian, an almost view of Pelagius. We're like, okay, yes, we can't do it by ourselves, but if we just take the first steps, then God meets us and brings us the rest of the way. <laughs> to which we say, no, you're a corpse. If you're outside of Christ, you're dead in your sins. Dead people don't take any steps, none at all. Read their Fitbit. No steps at all. So we don't have a semi-Pelagian view either. It's not if you just try really hard by yourself or almost by yourself. God will meet you halfway, whatever. That's not our view at all. And that's not what's presented here. You say, how is it possible for me to keep the commandments of God? Not by just trying harder by yourself. Because notice verse 24. This is not you trying harder all by yourself. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, what's true of someone who's living a life in obedience to God? 
You abide in God, and God abides in you. It's not, there you are over there, there God is over there, He's looking down at you like, come on, get with it, obey my commandments, and you're like, okay, I'm trying my very best. It's not that. He says there's a mutual indwelling for anyone who keeps the commandments of God. Any true believer, God is in you, and you also are in God. In other words, your lives are so tied together. His very power is given to you. It's within you. And he says here, by the Holy Spirit. Don't you know? This is how you know. How do I know God's in me? He's invisible. Because his spirit is within you. And how do you know that? The spirit's invisible. Because you obey God. (laughs) You actually change. How? By the spirit working inside you. This is not Pelagian views of you by yourself working hard. This is God working hard in you. Yes, you put forth effort, but it's God in you. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. It's this mutual indwelling. It's the Holy Spirit within you. The way Paul puts it in Romans 8, if you remember, is that by the Spirit who's in you, you put to death the deeds of the body. You don't do it without the Spirit simply because you cannot do it without the Spirit. You say, well, I'm just stuck on this habit of pornography and I've tried to give it up. I've tried to kick it or I just have lustful looks and I'm trying not to, but I can't. You're right. You're right. You can't. But if God is in you, can he? Nevertheless, not I, but God's grace in me. That's how you kick it. That's how you fight it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Any sin in your life that you say, well, just because of who I am and what I've struggled with, I can't overcome it, is a slander on the name of God. It's God in you overcoming it. You're working, yes, but it's God in you. It's Him in you, you in Him, His Spirit in you. And by the Spirit, you kill that sin. You say, my tongue is just untamable. I just lash out before I even think about it. You can't tame it. God can tame any wild stallion. God can tame it, and He is within you. It's the Holy Spirit inside you. And maybe you never thought about that, but we call Him a Holy Spirit. He's holy. And if He's holy, when He's in you, you become holy. He changes you because He is powerful. What's the very first? You say, I can't, I know I need to love each other. That's the key thing here, love other people. I just don't find that in myself. I remember thinking that in high school as I started to sense a call to be a preacher. I thought, I love God's word. I love studying God's word. So probably I should become a preacher. I love teaching it. I just love it. And there's nothing else I love to do. But I don't know it's going to work out because I don't really like people. (laughs) That's probably a problem if you're going to become a pastor. I like people now. (laughs) And how did that happen? Because I tried really hard, I promise you it was not. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, changing us, and it does happen. So what do you think about Christian obedience, if you're a believer? Is it a have to? Does it feel like a burden to you? There is a labor, there is a warfare about it, there is a heaviness about it. But look, you have to be able to step back if you're going to have any success at all. You have to be able to step back. 
And first, remember that you're cleared of the guilt of it. So even when you fail, you get back up and you go at it again. That God is at work in you. That you get to obey God. You get to be modest. You get to fight pornography. You get to. It's a holy, wonderful privilege. You don't want your life to be any of those unholy things. You get to fight them by the Holy Spirit who lives inside you. If you are wrestling with a sin this morning, I give you no Pelagian command. I don't say just get over it. It doesn't work that way. I say, you believe in Christ, you set your gaze upon him completely, you pray for his help, you forget what's behind, you stop doubting that you can't overcome it because you're too weak, you remember it's not you, it's him in you, and then you get to overcome the sin and love one another. Let's pray. God, thank you that you do dwell in us and that this mutual indwelling, even if we don't think often about it, is always true. You are in us. Christ, you're in us and we're in you. Father, you're in us and we're in you. Spirit, you're in us and we're in you. You have brought us in to the very Trinitarian life. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We're not living just merely mortal lives anymore. We're not even mortal. We will live forever. Please, Lord, help us not to shrug our shoulders and give in to temptations when they are strong. Not to give up on old habits of sin that cling to us. But to have this face just like our Savior who set his face toward Jerusalem like Isaiah who set his face like flint. Help our faces to be like flint toward holiness. And with joy and with songs and with exaltation to proceed up the path toward Jerusalem, toward our heavenly home. Progressing in holiness like the way of the righteous. Brighter and brighter until the full day. I pray for any here who are not seeing any progress in holiness in themselves and have not, that you would help them to obey the first command to believe in Christ, that they might be saved and changed, and being changed, they might get to change even more to become more like you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.